Let's lighten it up by not lightening it up at all. You are listening to Pomegranates and Pitchforks. We are a horror and true crime podcast that brings true stories and not-so-true stories together in beautiful and disturbing harmony. I'm Alexandria Youngray, and my lovely co-host is Sunshine Bellon. Hi there. <laughs> hey there. Hi. So so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to try and be, like, I don't know, a little sultry. Yeah, no, I would uh, go home with you from the bar. No, oh, thank you. <laughs> Just based on my voice. Yeah. Yeah, impressive. Voice is like 70% okay. of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet, I got it covered. Look at how much I'm contributing. Nice. Oh. Yeah, uh, trigger warning episodes are not over yet. This is another child abduction sexual assault, no bueno.com. <laughs> All around, episode. bad guy, feel bad about humanity. Bad guy, feel bad. Yep. And it's not great. It's not a It's not a happy time. But we are in the middle of the cases that created the sex offender registry, and so these are the cases we're covering. Well, I think we'll all be better people for getting through it. Yes. As weird as that sounds, but I think it's pretty accurate. I mean... You know, I've been thinking about the whole, like, is it exploitative to be interested in true crime? Mm -hmm. But what's the alternative? Not talking about it? Right. Well, I think that I think that that's been something I've been thinking about a little bit recently, just seeing various responses to, like, the Ted Bundy documentary and the right. movie coming out and all that. Like, Stop you know. putting flower crowns on Ted Bundy. Yeah, which, like, that's that's a valid assessment, um, despite the fact that, like, I'm going to finish the documentary series and I might even see the movie. Like, I don't know. Like, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really stop my uh, voyeurism any. But I do think that the difference is, uh, is, is in glorifying and, like, turning real life, you know, just horribly broken, horrible people who... You know, just turning them into caricatures. Right. I think it's desensitizing socially in a way that's not necessarily beneficial. Right. Like, it turns that level of depravity into, like, a spectacle that, um, you know, I don't think really facilitates in it being addressed effectively, necessarily. Yeah. I mean, that being said, people doing the research and understanding the crimes and understanding how somebody could do that, I think is the other side of that coin, which mm -hmm. I've... I just feel like that's very beneficial. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, like, you know, people interviewing and investigating Ted Bundy and all of those other serial killers from, like, the 70s, 80s, 90s is how we got, like, a relatively robust FBI profiling scheme mm -hmm. so that we can catch serial killers better. Right. Which, not to make too broad a statement too early in the game, but I kind of feel like... If the ends are a more effective system for treating or stopping or catching people before they do these things, 
than the means of serial killers ending up like sort of glorified could possibly be a little bit worth it. I don't necessarily think the Ted Bundy movie is going to make anybody like that's not going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back and make somebody a serial killer. I don't think. Right. Maybe it would be the straw, but like certainly not the cause. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, no, serial killers, I don't think are created out of media. No. That said, I do think that like the glorification of the people uh, definitely has like problematic elements to it because people start like emulating some of the problematic personality traits of these people. Right, right. Who's it? Zach Efron playing Ted Bundy? Uh Like, that's another thing I've seen is people having you know, very strongly worded articles about how not okay it is to, like, be attracted to Ted Bundy in in the, uh, you know, in the movie that Zac Efron plays him in. And I'm just like, well, is it, though? Because this is being presented to us. We all know this is a true story. Yeah. But it's being presented it to us, like, it's being presented to us much like a novel would be, right? It's It's still a story. It's still entertainment. And I'm sorry, but... <laughs> You have Zac Efron playing the lead. Like, don't act like yeah. people are don't act like people are like terrible or immoral for going like, ew, a really scary dark lead that's like attractive. Like, come on now. Also, part of the like whole thing about Ted Bundy is that he was just an attractive, you know, charming dude. Right. And so, like, <laughs> you can't just make him out to seem like he's a monster, which he was, and not paint the whole picture. But yeah, it's not, he wasn't just a monster. He also had that weird charm. And if you like pretend that that wasn't there, then you're just like opening the floodgates of another, you know, generation of people that don't know how to search for narcissistic, sociopathic people. Right. Right. Exactly. And like, you know, know, I did, I did watch the Ted Bundy tapes and I remember the entire time I was like scoffing at him. Mm hmm. But I've done a lot of Ted Bundy research. Like, yeah. he's our serial killer. He went to my law school. Right, yeah. And so, you know, he had this, like, you know, self-important laugh. I remember thinking, if I didn't know that you had murdered those women, I would have thought that was a really charming laugh. Right, but exactly. Because but because I know, I know that you murdered those women, I think you're a fucking scumbag. Right. And that's just, like, an important perspective to keep. Right, exactly. Also, like, a lot of people talk about him defending himself in court and how, like, he was such an impressive baby attorney. But probably because I'm a lawyer, watching him defend himself in court, I was rolling my eyes the entire time. I was like, you are shooting yourself in the foot, you fucking dumb shit. Right. Well, because I think that's the thing, like, really... (sighs) Not to say he shouldn't have been competent to stand trial, but, like... How could somebody accused of what he was accused of be considered competent to be their own lawyer? And is that even a standard? Yeah, no, it was like, so... Like, poop-throwing hobo couldn't be his own lawyer, could he? I mean, you you have the right to defend yourself. You have the right. Right, no matter the circumstances, they're never going to be like, no, you're too crazy to be your own lawyer. But but that doesn't mean that there's a saying in law in the law that is a lawyer who represents himself has an idiot for a client. Yes, I've heard that on the TV. And it is a thing that is real in the real life as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving on from, you know, the fun stuff. 
you know, I think that we needed the fun stuff. We need the fun stuff. I keep on, like, seeing this picture on the outline link, and I'm like, oh. oh this precious little girl. It's so hard. It makes it hard that you put that at the very beginning. I know. But I wanted it I wanted it to be about her, you know? Right. And I think it's important. It's a very humanizing thing, even if it's yeah. a gesture within an outline. But, yeah, yeah it makes it... Just uh, even sitting here recording it with you, I'm almost kind of feeling like I'm avoiding talking about it because I can see your picture. It's it's really tough. It's really, really tough. And, like, I researched what happened to this girl, and I'm not going to go in as much detail as I found. Mm-hmm. So I had to, like, kind of sit with that as well. Oh, yeah. And that was not my favorite. But, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like knowing... As much as I can know, there's something valid to that, you know, so that you can really know what happened. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, like I, I tone it down a little bit for the podcast because not everybody needs to know that information, but I right. feel like as the, the lead researcher that it's important for me to get as much information as I can get. Right. You're the one, I mean, when you're the one introducing the information to me and the topics and that kind of stuff, it makes total sense that you would have a more in-depth understanding. And I think not only is there an issue of not everyone needs to hear the details, but also like there's a big difference between learning the details and discussing them in like a tactful manner and like, Mm -hmm. and being like the purveyor of the nitty gritty, like, I don't yeah. think you want to be the person telling everyone, like, blasting all that information, you know? Yeah. I don't I don't want the podcast to be a, like, shock exploitation podcast. Right. Which I think, in a very long-winded kind of way, brings us circling back to... What happened? The, the issue, is this exploitative or is this acceptable? Yeah. And yep. I think that's where that line is, right? It's yep. not exploitative because you're not uh, going into the horrible details of what happened to these people... Children, you are discussing it in a, you know, tactful manner. Yeah. Basically, I try to, I try to talk about the things that I think are important to talk about and, and not completely breeze past what happened because Mm -hmm. I want people to know what happened, but not go into it in a way that basically attracts thrill seekers Right. Like, they're getting a rush out of hearing these, like, ghastly details, and that's what the purpose is. Because, like, I don't know, watch gore porn if you need that. (laughs) Right. This is not the format for that. (laughs) This is wrong format. Not the rocks to be gotten off here. No. So, let's talk about Megan Kanka. Very, very cute little girl. Cute little girl. She's, ah, she's a really cute little girl. And she looks... Both me and Sunshine (laughs) saw this picture of this little girl and both thought, that looks like me when I was seven. (laughs) Yep, pretty much. We we both had the same reaction of like, that was us. (laughs) Because it fucking was. Yeah. So Megan Nicole Kanka, she was born December 7th, 1986 to Richard and Maureen Kanka. Uh, She had one older brother and one older sister. At the time of this story, the older brother was nine, the sister was 12, and Megan was seven. Okay. Uh, she lived with her family in the quiet suburb of Hamilton Township, New Jersey. She was happy and helpful 
and well-liked. Her favorite color was pink, and her hair did whatever the fuck it wanted. Right on. (laughs) So. And I... You know, there was a lot of stories about Megan's Law Mm -hmm. and about the murderer, and not a lot of stories about Megan herself. So that was basically what I found about Megan. Oh, wow. That's so little. That's upsettingly little. I'm, I'm... kind of upset that I couldn't give more background about this little girl, but... I mean, I don't know, though. At the same time, like, maybe that's okay. Like, she was only seven, and maybe her parents, like, didn't mm-hmm. need or want the world to know everything about her, which, like, that's I get. That's entirely possible. Also, you get a little bit more personality in in later, but it's it's not through an awesome... We'll talk about it. Okay. So, we're gonna move on to our perp, Jesse Tamandaquis. He was born April 15th, 1961. Mm-hmm. Um, his mother was an alcoholic who had already lost seven children to authorities. Wow. For being unfit. Which Dang. is a lot. That's a lot, a lot. And that's the kind of thing that sounds like succession, too. Like, if all of her other kids, well, if, all, if seven of her children were taken to the authorities, that means that him and anybody else who was around were born after that fact. Like, a cycle of children just, like, going. Ugh. Yeah. And I mean, like, we had some some parents like that in youth services and guardian ad litem. Oh, yeah? Where, yeah. So, So in Utah, if you've already had your parental rights terminated because of unfitness, Mm -hmm. um, you don't automatically have your kids taken away or anything like that. But if you fuck up again and your kids end up in the system again, mm-hmm. then you now have the burden to prove that you are a fit parent as opposed to the state okay. having the br- burden to prove that you are an unfit parent. Okay. So that's just a thing, but I don't know how it is in New Jersey. Yeah. But yeah, right, she just kept losing them. It might've been easier to keep losing them. Yeah, right, that makes sense, totally. You're already, like, watched and... Yeah. Um, his father was also an alcoholic and a career criminal. Hmm, joy. And apparently... Now, okay, so this was all brought up in his defense. Mm-hmm. So this could be exaggerated or made up entirely. Um, and the jury... Whatever it is, just presented in a light to, like, be his defense. So it's mm-hmm. justification. Yeah, and the jury found some of it to be probably true and some of it to be probably not true. So I'm just going right. to tell you what the defense attorney said. Okay. Um, he he said that his father regularly raped Jesse mm. and his younger brother and sister. Um, and also, at one point, he raped a neighbor girl in front of in front of Jesse and his holy shit other siblings. Um, also, Jesse was born with fetal alcohol effect. Okay. It's like more mild than a syndrome? I think it is. Because okay. if you look at him, I think I posted a picture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's got, he's got like a mustache and like long hair. And, and so some of the normal details that you'd be looking for on the facial. Yeah. Um, are covered, but like he doesn't have a flat bridge, but it's not like that distinct either. Right. There are some things you can see and go, oh, okay. Yeah. So so basically, like, there's some stuff that you can look for when mm-hmm. somebody has fetal alcohol syndrome to tell there's physical right, characteristics. Yeah. And a lot of them are covered by his hair. <laughs> right. Right. So, like, who would know? 
but you could kind of there, I don't know, there's some indication yeah. yeah so i could buy fetal alcohol effect if that's right. different <laughs> right a little so, more mild <laughs> yeah so basically the jury at least believed that like he didn't have a great childhood right you probably didn't have a great childhood there was probably right. well, sexual like, and physical abuse yeah just who FAA, knows how much it was, i mean you know? yeah like and he was definitely, he had a low IQ. Even if a small portion of those things happened, like even if 1% of those things happened, that's still real bad. Yeah. It wasn't, it was not great. Not a great place to, to start. And, and I mean, again, like if you're coming from abuse, like that doesn't give you an excuse to abuse, but it's a hurt people, hurt people thing. Right. Exactly. It just, it just highlights that trend. It's not an excuse. Yeah. It's just, uh, Yeah. Monsters tend to be made. They're not born like that. So in 1979, so he would have been like 18, I think. Mm -hmm. He he pled guilty to attempted aggravated assault on a five-year-old girl. What the fuck? Yeah. So he lured her into the woods and pulled her pants down, but he fled before he actually went any further. Thank God. Right. And he was given a suspended sentence. What does that mean? a little fucking nuts. It means that instead of going to jail, they were going to suspend his sentence under the agreement that he got counseling. But then he didn't go to counseling. I feel like that's a super, like, that's something, mm, an offense like that against a child is a super sketchy thing. Right? To, like, not, no. to, like, you know, you should be in jail for that. Sorry. Or at but least, like, like, under lock and key to make sure you get treatment, not, like, on your own recognizance. Like, look into this, bot, pal. Like, But, like, you see that a lot. You hear story like, like, um, oh, fuck. Something Turner? Brandon Turner? Mm-hmm. Do you remember that white kid who was in college? Yeah, Brock Turner. Brock Turner! Yeah. He got, what, three months, six months? Yeah. But that also probably happened because people knew about it and there was even an outcry at all. Yeah. Right? Like, socially. But, like, I mean. it's not it's not unheard of that basically, especially in 1979, yeah. people were like, eh, nothing happened. Yeah. Oh, that's so bad. So, so he, you know, agreed to get counseling so that they would suspend his sentence. And he didn't get counseling, so guess how much time he got? How much? Nine months! That doesn't seem like, I don't know. For attempting to sexually assault a five-year-old. Yeah, that's not good. That's you should be longer great. than that. I'm I don't very pro defendant. That's yeah. ridiculous. That's fucking ridiculous. Nine months. Well, especially I'm I assuming mean, with what's to come. Imagine how long it took for that little girl to process what had happened. Oh, probably. I mean, if she ever did. Life? If she ever <laughs> did, yeah. Like that's not. Yeah. Again, working with teenagers who've been through trauma, like that's not something that that's with you forever, whether or not you're constantly like, you know, living in fear because of it. That has from that moment on the way you think about the world and approach life is it's it's unalterably different. It changes you. Yeah. Yeah. No, when you're five, it breaks your innocence. Yeah. Among other things. (laughs) He stole her childhood. Mm -hmm. So you'd think. Okay, at least take away the time that she lost from her childhood. Right. Not nine so like, months. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, not so, at all. So, you know, he gets nine months, he gets out, and it's 1981. So he's fucking, like, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, he pleads guilty to sexual assault of a seven-year-old. Mm. This girl, he actually choked into unconsciousness, uh, believing he had killed her before he fled. So, so he, he fully thought he killed her. So he choked her into unconsciousness, presumably, to, like, assault her, and then mm. thought he killed her, so he fled. Yes. Mm. Um, Great. And he was sentenced to ten years... In the Adult Diagnostic and Treatment Center in Avenel, New Jersey. And he served six years, eight months. And then they which, said he was okay or what? Like, Well, the thing is, uh, at least one of his therapists believed that he was likely to commit another sexual offense after release. So you'd think that if one, at least one therapist believed that, that'd be enough to at least make him stay his the full duration of his sentence. Yeah. So that's kind of, remember how when I was talking about, like, sex crimes and blah, 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 and mm-hmm. I said the the mer- the perpetrator in this case, I don't think should have been released. Yeah. I don't think he should have been released. Right. He, he committed a crime. He got almost no time. And then he immediately committed another crime that was escalated. Right, so you're saying this is not a failure uh, or uh, evidence that, like, oh, if only we would have had the sex offender registry earlier. It's literally a, he, no, he should not have been out of jail. I don't think he should have been on the street. Yeah. I think, and I mean, like, I know that there's a lot of constitutional issues involved in the civil commitment part Mm -hmm. of the sex offender laws, Mm -hmm. but (sighs) civil commitment is legal. Mm Mm-hmm. Not just for sex offenses. I mean, that's the kind of thing you can get somebody civilly committed if they're, like, if they have suicidal ideation. Right, right? if they're a danger to themselves or others. Yeah. And so I think if you believe that somebody is likely to commit another sexual assault and you've got literally... Well, especially against a child. Two years apart, he's escalating his attacks on children victims. Yeah. And his therapists are like, yeah, I think he's going to keep doing this. I, th- I don't think he should have been released. No, definitely not. But, you know, that's that's his background, you know? Mm-hmm. And to make things even better, after he's done with the treatment center, he moves in with Brian Jennon and Joseph Cefeli, who lived with Cefeli's elderly mother. Mm-hmm. Cefeli and Jennon were other sex offenders who he had met in treatment. Oh, of course. Great. So that's fun. And I'm not saying that sex offenders shouldn't live together, because a lot of times that's their option. Right. But it's just like, this doesn't seem good. Right. Well, and I think that, that hindsight's twenty twenty thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. just knowing what proceeded after that, it's like, well, that was obviously, like, not a good thing. Yeah. And apparently Brian Jennon, like, was specifically volunteering as a big brother mm-hmm. so that he could get access to children. Oh, they don't do background checks with Big Brother stuff? Well, I'm sure they do now. Oh, yeah. But we're looking at the 80s and 90s. That's so bad. So, super yuck. The biggest of yuck. And uh, that's, that's like, our, our background. That's what... That's what he was steeped in. That's whether accurately in. or... That is, that is the shitfish stew that we have created. All right. So the three men lived diagonally across the street from the Kankas. Oh. Bet the Kankas would have liked to have known that. Uh, that is literally what Megan's Law is. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Megan Kanka, yeah, foreshadowing. Megan Kanka was riding her bike on July 29th, 1994. It was the evening and she went down the streets to play with a friend, but she ran into Jesse who lured her to his home by asking if she wanted to see his new puppy. Oh, of course. Which is literally where the don't go with somebody who offers to show you a puppy or a kitty comes from. Right. Of course. Like, all of these weird, crazy stranger abduction cases literally created what we now know as the classic story of that. Right, which is kind of a working theme throughout this podcast, right? The connection between the true life terrible things that create these, like, horror tropes. Yep, exactly. So so that's where we're at now. Um, in his room, he assaults her and she fights back. Go, Megan. This little fucking seven-year-old badass left a bite mark on his hand. Good. Fuck yes, Megan. So we don't know a ton about her, but we know that she was a feisty piece of fuck yeah. That's great. <laughs> yep. So... At least, at least she got that, that last hurrah. Fuck yeah, Megan. However, the fighting led to, she hit her head on his dresser and a door. Mm. Now, that was probably him pushing her. But right. um, it caused bleeding. So he didn't want her blood on the carpet. So he put a plastic bag over her head. Oh. And then he secured it with a belt and strangled her. Wow. And he hit her body in a toy box and dumped her in... Mercer County Park, which was about two or three miles from his house. Mm. So later he admitted that he killed her because he was afraid Megan would tell her mom and he would get in trouble and go to jail. Like a cunt. Right. That's, uh, I'm af- I was afraid of being held accountable for my actions yeah. in assaulting a child again. So I murdered her. Yeah. So like... Jesse Tamendikos, not a great childhood, but also not exactly the kind of person that you can, uh... Right, not a lot of empathy, let alone yeah, sympathy. Not not feeling not feeling bad for him. Mm-mm. Not, not really like, oh, I see why you did that. Yeah, no. No, definitely <laughs> Just a not. whole lot of like, how about you quit being a fucker that rapes seven-year-olds? Yeah, that's... Mm. So, so Megan doesn't come home and the family begins searching. Maureen even talked briefly to Jesse, who told her he'd seen her earlier in the evening with a friend. Oh, so just lie to her? Yeah. So police questioned Jesse and he said he saw her at 2.30 p.m. And those statements didn't quite line up. Okay. And he was being super nervous. Like, he was sweating and shaky. Right. And also his roommates, the other fucking sex offenders in mm-hmm. that house, had alibis. So they're like, that guy, main suspect. Doesn't so have an take, alibi, yeah. Not an alibi. Super sketch. Um, they took Jesse into the police station for questioning and searched his truck and home. In his truck, they found a toy chest. Mm-hmm. And in the garbage at his house, they found a waistband with of a small pair of pants. And oh. Maureen, Megan's mom, verified that those were Megan's. Oh. 
So the police questioned Jesse again on July 30th, so the day after. And after six hours, he asked to speak to his roommate. So Brian Jenin comes in. He can ask to speak to his roommate, not his lawyer? Like, Well, he just didn't request to speak to his lawyer. Okay. And they let him to speak to his roommate. Okay. Um, and he tells Jesse that the police have him and that he's going to need a friend on the outside. And he says, I'll be that friend. And after this, Jesse puts his head down and says she's in Mercer County Park. And he agrees to lead police to Megan's body. So Ugh. that's that's the that's the yuck. We're through the yuck. Okay, thank God. That was really yuck. It was it's it's yuck. It's big yuck. So during the trial, his defense tried to argue mitiga- mitigating factors. Mm-hmm. Like they weren't trying to argue that he didn't do it. They tried to argue that like he was coerced into confessing or that his roommates participated in the murder or that. <laughs> Don't kill me because I had a bad childhood. Right. Like, I'm not responsible for my actions. Yeah. So, Jesse was found guilty on May 30th of 1997, so three years later. Uh, He's sentenced to death on June 21st, 1997. He was found guilty of rape, sodomy, kidnapping, intentional, and felony murder. Dang. Good. And... Have I talked to you about felony murder? No. Do you know what felony... Well, okay, I'll just explain it because a lot of people aren't lawyers. Uh, so felony murder is... It is considered, like, essentially first-degree murder mm-hmm. if it is done during the commission of certain other felonies. Okay. So it it's a... Because of this, a death was caused. Yeah. And so we don't even have to prove that you premeditated this. We're just going to charge you for that murder. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And and sometimes it gets a little bit like I've heard of um, sometimes burglars fleeing the scene. Mm-hmm. A police will shoot one of the burglars. Yeah. And so the cohorts will get charged with felony murder. Oh, I don't like that. It's not great. But there are some times when you're like, yeah, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> and rape, arson, burglary, those are some of the examples of yeah. felonies that, that well, you can like, the felony murder rule. Yeah. If, like, burglars were to accidentally kill, like, you know, the person they were burgling yeah. in the commission of a crime, I could see that being charged as felony murder. But specifically the example of, like, the cop accidentally killing a burglar, like, that's just fucked. Like, why are you doing yeah. that? That's not... I don't... I don't like felony murder all the time. There's a lot of times that I don't like felony murder. In fact, I kind of don't like that you can get capital punishment, that you can get the death sentence for felony murder because they don't have to prove intent. Right. Yeah, that's that's kind of a slippery slope, isn't it? Yeah. I have a lot of legal opinions that get way more complicated than... (laughs) Yeah, than we need right now. (laughs) Yeah, but that's felony murder. There's there's also, like, um, there's certain felonies, like assault cannot be felony murder Mm -hmm. because that's essentially like (laughs) if you are murdering somebody you are assaulting them yeah and so proving assault and then getting capital murder is kind of fucked up yeah because you entirely bypass second degree murder right right the idea that like yes they did intend to assault them but they didn't intend to murder them yeah so there there are certain felonies that don't automatically get felony murder yeah so that's just an interesting thing that people might want to know about 
It's basically a, we get this automatically by proving these, and we don't have to prove the normal elements. Right, okay. Oh, also, so at the sentencing hearing, mm-hmm. where, he's, where he's sentenced to death, the seven-year-old girl that Temendicus had attacked in 1981 was present. Oh my gosh. So, that's neither here nor there, that's just like a really wow piece of information. Yeah, I wonder how that affected I, the trial. I don't think it affected the trial because she was just sitting in the, in oh, okay. the courtroom. She was just present. But I, uh, I I hope that it brought her comfort. I guess. Well, I feel like that would be a pretty, that'd be a pretty difficult thing to do, but a pretty baller way to get closure on a situation like that. Yeah, exactly. But I'm sure that that whole experience was super painful because basically the seven-year-old girl got grazed by the bullet. Yeah. And then watched it hit somebody else lethally. Yeah. You know, you know, she didn't dodge the bullet, but she wasn't killed by it. Yeah. And then she watched somebody else get killed by it. Well, I'm sure that that was extremely painful. Right. I'm sure that definitely added to her trauma. Yeah. So, and she would have been in like her mid twenties at that point. Cause it's only 16 years later. Yeah. You know, so she's still young enough that man, fuck that. Yeah. No, <laughs> I can't even imagine. Also, the house where Megan was murdered was torn down and turned into a little pop-up park in Megan's name. Oh, how nice. So that's kind of that's kind of a sweet thing. But other stuff about, you know, post-sentence Jesse, uh, the death penalty was abolished in New Jersey in 2007. So before it happened to him. Yep. So his death sentence was commuted to life, and he continues to appeal. Ugh. Trying to get out still. Like an asshole. And I mean, like, I can't blame him for appealing, but also fuck off. Yeah, like, that's... Right. Actually, I can blame him for appealing. You did a really fucking bad thing. You don't deserve to get out. Fuck off. Right. I don't know if it's just, like, a Hollywood thing where they show, like, people who've been in jail for a long time. Like, the wise old guy who's, like, accepted it because he totally fucked up. And he's like, this is just my life now. This is what I get. I feel like that probably isn't actually that common. But you'd think at well, some point... Well, I mean, point... even if it is common, then you'd stop fucking appealing. Right, that's the thing. Is like, I don't know if it's, like, zen or self-loathing, and I don't really know if it matters that much. Because, like, yeah, at a certain point, you'd think you'd... Rec- like. But I guess that shows, you know, if you don't have a conscience or empathy or, you know, that's a pretty good indicator of, like, yeah, his mental state, right? Oh, and I, I 100% don't think that he has empathy. Because, like, whenever he was talking about... Megan's murder mm-hmm. to to police or during the trial, he had this like super flat affect, like unemotional, matter of fact way of talking about oh, it. Yeah. And the only time that he got like any like glint of emotion was when he was talking about how Megan bit his hand. Oh, right. Because how dare she? So basically, he only gave a fuck about himself. Right. Clearly. And he had this like uh please don't kill me statement during the sentencing part of his trial Mm -hmm. so post guilty verdict do we kill him or give him life in prison Mm -hmm. and his statement was essentially like please don't kill me because i would like to understand why something like this could happen what like he never he never said he never used the rhetoric that implied that he took 
responsibility. Right. Something like this could happen. Does he mean what happened to me? What he did to Megan? Or does he mean what happened to him? Or what does he like? He means, he means so that I can understand my crime, but he didn't even say it like that. He said it in this, like, not about me way. This crime that I found myself in the middle of. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super passive language that implies that like, he doesn't even acknowledge his responsibility when he's talking about his responsibility. Yeah. So definitely does not have empathy. Definitely should never be let out of prison. Nope. Ugh. Bad, bad man. Bad. How, man. how old is he in this picture? He's 57. Okay. Yeah. And he is aging like a person that is aging. Yeah. I didn't want to like. Like milk. I didn't want to like, I don't know, make it all about like, ew, he's so ugly now. Like, I mean, not like he was attractive before, but like, you know. I didn't really want to go there, but he does look like milk. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> His he is curdled. <laughs> yes, curdled. Yeah. Oh, Ugh, I'm getting rid of this outline. I don't want to see that anymore. <laughs> it's valid. I don't. I don't. So. Oh man. So that's that's a crime. Okay. We're we're through that. We can talk legal stuff. Yay, legal stuff is at least I don't know separate yeah at least not as specific <laughs> There's like this benign safety behind law right it's not as specifically terrible mm-hmm. you don't have to think about the individual crimes you kind of go okay let's talk statistics now yeah get a level of removal from this issue yep so megan's law was created it was created through the jacob wetterling act mm-hmm. so it amended the violent crime control and law enforcement act of 1994 okay they actually passed a Megan's Law in New Jersey in 1994, so, like, the year Megan died. Mm-hmm. And as we talked about before in the Jacob Wetterling episodes, Megan died the same year that the Jacob Wetterling Act was passed. Mm-hmm. And so instead of just creating a registry for law enforcement, they added that law enforcement could notify the public. Right. Which I think could notify the public is a nice, maybe that, I don't know, could that have been a good place to stop? I mean, man, I don't fucking know. (laughs) It definitely gets more and more intense from that point on. Right. Well, and I think that's something I just, it's, you know, been a theme over the last few episodes, right? And I think it continually comes up of like, how helpful is it versus damaging to, to society, whether through fear or through mob justice, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I just like Where is the where is the line there of like keeping mm-hmm. children safe and people having the right to know if they're living next to monsters versus like people not having the right to ruin other people's lives or take the law into their own hands. Yeah. Yeah. So Maureen and Richard Kanka, their th- their whole thing was Megan would still be alive if they had known that there were sex offenders living across from them. Right, which is true, I think. That's valid. It's possible. It's entirely possible. That being said, I've said before, I don't think Jesse Tomendiquas should have been released. Right. So is that solution really addressing the problem? It's like a yeah. solution that p- could potentially work, but also that's not the real problem, is it? <laughs> yeah. And also, like, they would have known to warn Megan about the across the street guys and they would have known to 
maybe be more cautious about Megan when those guys were around. Mm-hmm. But does that really mean, I mean, you can't know that it would have saved her life. Right. That she would have never been in a situation where that could have happened. Like, yeah. Or even with those same people. Yeah. And I mean, the thing about the sex offender registry is that you register where they're living. Mm-hmm. That doesn't say where they can go during the day. Right. Exactly. Yeah, there's a whole lot of other factors. Yeah, so maybe he doesn't kidnap the girl Kitty Corner. Maybe he goes down the road by, you know, a town over. Like, fucking homeboy from the Jacob Wetterling episodes. Right. Well, I I think it's interesting, too, how kind of perfectly this circles back to, like, kind of the conversation we were having about unrelated cases at the beginning of the show. Just, like, Mm -hmm. that's not the problem. Right. That that's not the problem. The problem isn't yeah. people not knowing that sex offenders live across the street. The problem is what are they doing there in the first place if they're dangerous. Right. Yeah, and the thing is like most people on the sex offender registry So so I for fun because we were doing this for fun <laughs> looked up the registry near me. Um, I did that too. Yeah. So Utah just registers everybody if you've yeah. been convicted of a sex offense. They don't really, like, tier people. They just they just throw everybody on the internet. Mm-hmm. And I had, I had nine sex offenders living by me. All of them had either one charge mm-hmm. or it was multiple charges from the same time. From the same incident. Okay. So most of them were things like lewdness, mm-hmm. uh, possession of child porn, there was, there was actually one woman who was on the sex offender registry who had been convicted of sexual acts with a 16 or 17 year old. Oh dear. And, and they didn't have further charges. Right. That was it. That was it. There was, there was one dude who had like an aggravated sexual assault who served like 10 years and then got out. But that was literally in the eighties. Yeah. It was an old charge. So want to know what I found when I looked? What? So I found, I only found three. You live in a more rural area than I do. Right. But I actually tend to, as I, I have often had this perception that like crime is just as common in like rural or suburban areas. It's just less reported. But I guess like how would I really confirm that? Like I just kind of assumed there'd be a lot. Honestly, is what I assumed is there'd be a lot of weird, creepy old, assaulty oil rig workers and I, you know, whether valid or invalid, I also have a lot of mistrust of, like, churches. That's fair. And we have, like, several Mormon churches and a bunch of those, like, weird, like, off-brand, like, Christian preacher churches where, like, the Uh church is, like, whatever the bishop guy is deciding is, kind of. And those things to me always make me kind of nervous. I mean, <laughs> and and there valid. was a thing too. I was surprised because uh, uh, somebody I know out here uh, found out that the daycare that she had been taking her daughter to, that the husband had just barely been arrested when she picked up her daughter. Gross. Found out the husband had been arrested the day before for assaulting his daughter. Ooh, that's now weird. I don't know whatever came from that, and you know, just because he's not, you know, he wasn't on the registry for my immediate area. There were three like. Within, like, you know, five miles of me or something. Mm. And it's, you know, a good 20-minute drive into town where most people live. So that kind of makes sense because it did – the little blips on the map did get a lot more uh, concentrated over there. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting because as bad as it is, I was kind of relieved 
because all of the charges except for, I think there are three or four offenders, and all of them except for one, their only charges were like, they seemed like they probably got drunk and sexually assaulted somebody. Right. Uh, Not that they were, and one of them did have a charge against a child, and I was like, oh, that's fucked. Right, but that always makes me more uncomfortable. And one of them was a charge that I've never seen before that I saw because proximity to the reservation, but it was something like unlawful sex acts on... Like, they don't say the reservation, but it's something like that. Okay. Like, I don't know what that crime specifically is, but it, there's... How recent was it? Recent. Okay. The reason I ask that is because we very recently closed the sex offender loop mm-hmm. in... Did, did you hear about the loophole for basically white people could rape res women and get away with it? Uh, no. Basically, we had no... No one had jurisdiction. Oh, my God. And so literally a white man could go or a white person could go to the res and rape a native. And and they could just do that. And that loophole was closed, like, within the last, like, five or ten years. Okay, yeah, these were all more recently. And so that's probably where that, I guess, maybe the creation of that crime maybe is what mm-hmm. closed the loophole. But I remember just it thinking it was like, like... The res sex offense might be that crime is why I'm right. That makes sense. Yeah. That totally makes sense. Cause I remember seeing it and I'd forgotten about it until we just barely started talking and I saw it and was going to ask you, I'm like, what, what even is that? Is that like, it might be that it was a, it was a, I think it was the violence against women act Mm. during later Obama administration. Mm -hmm. Not a hundred percent sure. I didn't do research on that recently, but I have looked into it and yeah, that loophole was very recently closed. How does it work with, how did that work with natives on the res? If you were saying that because it's the reservation, they don't do federal crimes. Is that how you were saying it? Basically. Do they not prosecute their own federal crimes? Uh, they weren't allowed to. Okay. So then if, uh, they weren't given so then what about federal crimes between tribal members? There's nobody. Oh, tribes can, if, if they are tribal within tribal, then they can prosecute. Okay. They have jurisdiction. Okay. But they didn't have jurisdiction on the white guy. Right. Okay. That makes sense. I just had to clarify. And Indian law is actually an area that I don't practice in, and it gets pretty complex. Oh, I'm because sure. Because they're technically sovereign nations, but they're also not at all. Right. And so the, the law, like, basically, I know the Indian Child Welfare Act. And that's like and it. that's it. Right. <laughs> And Indian law gets like real complicated. Oh, I'm sure. We were talking about lots um, of things. We got we got real real lost. Yeah, that's um, fine. That's fine. Bring it back in. We were talking about sex offenders in our neighborhoods. Yes. Um. So I got all of this information from the Smart website. Mm-hmm. So Smart is the Office of Sex Offender Sentencing, Monitoring, Apprehending, Registering, and Tracking. Wow, good acronym, guys. Yeah, Smart. Uh, which is part of the Office of Justice, which is an agency within the DOJ. Okay. So they are the sex offender agency. And they had this really great, like, basically, here are the sex offender registry crimes. Mm -hmm. And here is how the laws changed. Okay, cool, cool. So, I mean, basically, I I didn't have to look far to find this research. I just found this really awesome. So we covered the Wetterling Act, Mm -hmm. and to recap, it established the baseline. It made it so that people, you know, so that law enforcement had to register sex offenders. Mm -hmm. It established a heightened class 
for sexually violent predators. Okay, good. And required that they address verify every 90 days. Cool. Okay, so more strict tabs are being kept on violent offenders than just regular assault? And then it was annually for all other offenders. Well, you can be a sex offender. Oh, right, without committing assault. You could just pee in public or... Lewdness. Get caught driving naked in your car. Those are the non-violent you know, you didn't force yourself upon somebody or yeah. force somebody to do something. Although I do feel like if I feel like the child porn is a gray area. If you're in possession of that, I think you're obviously not directly responsible, but like I don't know, should kind of be treated like you're responsible in part for that existing. Child porn gets complicated when you get into civil stuff. Mm-hmm. But if you are just a possessor of child porn, you're considered a low risk offender. Okay, which technically makes sense because you're not directly i mean like you are absolutely you're engaging in your fantasy but you're not physically yeah you are you are contributing to a problem that directly harms children right that's uh, that's you are not directly harming children right right it's complicated it's definitely not a good thing no but i can see why they're tiered that way um it also provided that discretionary public notification okay you know, the, the law enforcement can notify the public. Right. So what Megan's law did was it mandated public disclosure on registered sex offenders when required to protect the public. So so who would who would engage, who would uh, make that call to decide whether or not it was mandatory? Was that part of their sentencing? Was that part of like... Um, it was what they were convicted of. Okay. So there was a three-tier system. There still is a three-tier right. system that's just been like more... Uh, fine-tuned fine-tuned but essentially you had low risk moderate risk and high risk okay your low risk were the people who had possessed child porn Mm -hmm. your moderate risk were attempted assaults and um even some assaults Mm -hmm. if they were not i don't want to get into too many details but essentially like fondling right you know gross and awful but not the violentest. Right. And then you've got the high risk that are the straight up violent. You raped somebody. Okay. That makes sense. You know, that sort of stuff. So, so the low risk, you basically, they were, they were kept on the police registry. And I think you maybe notified like local schools and daycares. Mm -hmm. Maybe. And then moderate risk, you did look, Notify local schools and daycares. And then high risk, they straight up were, like, sending flyers around the neighborhood. Really? Yeah. Like, police were knocking on people's doors with their face and information. Wow. I mean, because this is the 90s. They didn't have the... Right. It's not like there's a... The sex offender registry online. Yeah. Yeah. But there were still rules about, like, proximity to schools and that kind of stuff as far as where... Well, that that changes. That's a state-by-state thing. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. Because that, that uh, also might be part of why there's very few sex offenders in my media area, because my town is small as hell, and I'm, like, a block and a half away from an element from two elementary schools or something. Yeah, I actually don't know what the... I don't know if Utah has any close-to-school or daycare center laws. Hmm. I haven't really checked. I should. I should know that, but I didn't feel like it. <laughs> I didn't feel like it. No, they're honest. This is a terrible, but they're, they're, I don't know what kind of, you know, perimeter it would actually be, 
but definitely like when I was doing the registry map look over thing, mm-hmm. my grandparents live way close, walking distance to elementary school. And there are several, like, in-home, like, licensed daycare centers in okay. their neighborhood. And so just based on the number of offenders that popped up in their neighborhood, there might not be any restrictions. Or if they are, they're pretty minimal. Right. Yeah. I think Utah, we we have a really, really, really broad law as far as notification goes. Because mm-hmm. basically, if you're a registered sex offender at all, you end up on the registry Yeah, that is public. But I don't think we have a lot of restrictions as far as, like, where you can be right, okay. sort of stuff. Okay, interesting. I, I haven't heard of any laws of that type. Hmm. Um, Florida is the notorious state. Oh, really? Yeah, they have, like, can't live 2,000 feet from a school or a daycare or a park. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so many. To the extent that, like... Being able to find a house, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they, they talked about this in, in the Dark podcast, it was like, in Miami, houses that fell outside of the areas where a sex offender was not allowed to be mm-hmm. were like, there was 30 or 40 of them. Ugh. And that's just houses. That's not available houses. Right, that's just that's houses. just the houses. Wow. Somebody might have already been living in them. Probably right, most was. likely. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. So, you know, and then, you know, this is one of the things where the sex offender registry, where, where I have problems with it, mm-hmm. is you, you, you put them on the registry and then you limit where they can go and then you require them to register. And there are some states where you're not allowed to be in a homeless shelter if you are a sex offender. Which means you don't have a street address. Which means you are violating Your the terms of the registry. Oh. And you get put back in jail. Because you can't find a house. See, that's messed up. Not only is that, like, messed up because you're literally arresting somebody not for committing a crime, but for... Being, I mean, not that they're not responsible for their crimes, but then they're disenfranchised by the set the sentence, and mm-hmm. then you're punishing them for that. That seems kind of weird and excessive. Like what I was thinking before you got to that conclusion, which is like, oh, well, that's going to lead to a lot of recidivism because they don't have a home and they don't can't probably you know easily find reliable income without a home and all these sorts of things. Like, of course, that's going to stress somebody who's already been a criminal. Into committing more criminal acts. Well, that's my other big issue. But then in addition to that, they can still go to jail without being, without further, without uh, reoffending, which is not fair. That's not what our system is about. Yeah. Or shouldn't be. That's kind of my other issue with the sex offender registry is uh, they've served their time. And so one would assume that we are going to try to rehabilitate them and put them back into society and have them be functioning members of society. Mm-hmm. And if you not just treat them like they're not a functioning member of society, like they're still a criminal, but yeah. also limit their access to basic livelihood things, like getting a job, getting a place to live. Right. Then what's their motivation to not reoffend? Like nothing. Nothing whatsoever. Because they might go back like, to jail at anyway. At least in prison, they got three hots and a cot. Right? <laughs> Jesus. 
And, like, I really don't want a system that encourages recidivism. <laughs> right. Or, again, the, the idea, too, I think that's sort of settling in and hitting hard is this idea that, like, somebody could go to back to, could go to prison not for not for committing a crime. Yeah. Right. For not actually committing a crime with a victim for, you know, not being able to fill out the appropriate paperwork yep. is such a, that's a, such a yucky, I hate makes that. me really uncomfortable I reason so for much. anybody to face criminal charges. Like I'm either too poor or too uneducated. It's forced homelessness. Yeah. And then it is being arrested for being homeless. But charged in a really severe way too. Cause aren't you, aren't you going back to jail as though you would like, Reoffended. I mean, you violated. It, it's not a reoffense, but it's a violation. Right. I feel like violating parole for a sex offense. Yeah. It looks a lot worse than what they're actually going to jail for. Yes. Yeah. No. It definitely is not good. It's it's pretty big yuck. Mm. So, I mean, I, I I guess it's not that I don't want bad things to happen to bad people. It's that I don't want to be a part of a society that like unconscionably does bad things. Right. Like, I just yeah. don't, two wrongs don't make a right kind of basic stuff. Like, I mean, that's kind of why I don't support the death penalty. It's yeah. like, you know, every once in a while I read these true crime stories and somebody gets the death penalty and I don't cry for them. Yeah. You know, there's, there's plenty of times where I'm like, well, if somebody was going to die, it might as well be you. Yeah. But I also don't support the death penalty. And that's because I don't want government sanctioned murder. Right. It's not about whether or not that individual has a right to life at this point. It's about, like, a system that can make that call. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, then you get into, like, the racism of the criminal mm-hmm. justice system and how right. black people are way more likely to get the death sentence. And well, you get just into like, wrongfully convicted people. Right. And uh, this is a more, like, I mean, first movie, then historical reference, but, like, watching the Black Klansmen... Yeah. And watching that I scene I mean, that where... was a true story. There right. was stuff that was, like, history, like, Hollywooded about it, but it right. really happened. But just, like, the whole, you know, that black kid getting, like, yeah. beaten that and burned alive. Yeah, that was a alive. real story. Yeah. That was historical. But, yeah, like, getting uh, beaten and burned alive for something he didn't even do. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, I mean, God, we should definitely do uh, lynching in America. Oh, yeah. Because talk about horror. Yeah, that's scary. But yeah, no, I don't I don't want to live in a system where that's acceptable, where that's status quo. Right. Yes, I don't I, I, th- there are some people that technically deserve or don't deserve to live, but we don't get to make that call. Right, I'm not comfortable with any I can't think of a government system with, that I'd be comfortable having that call because I think uh corruption is is constant and inherent and just if that's already a status quo, who's to say what that can turn into? Yeah. Right? Just like you were talking about earlier with, um, it's like felony murder, where you could potentially get put to death for somebody else dying during the commission of another crime. And that wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, like, again, not that they, I think that's why it's so convenient when victims are able to fight back and the perpetrators end up dying. <laughs> yeah. You don't get, like, the satisfaction of proving them guilty in court. But it really takes care of that whole... Because I really, to me, that is the only time when it's uh, morally without question. When it's beyond... Yeah. I mean, essentially, you, you've just, got self-defense. Right. And that's, like, the... That's 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 the best. 
That's, I think, the best possible way it could work out. Uh, but then again, where's the line between that and, like, mob justice? Right. It's complicated. It's way complicated. That is the moral of this podcast. Ugh. <laughs> it's complicated. The theme. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was... That that was Megan's law, was, was essentially um, sex offenders... You had to disclose information if they were a high-risk offender. Mm-hmm. And also that information collected under state registration programs could be disclosed for any purpose permitted under state law. Explain. Basically, the state could decide to disclose more than just the high-risk offenders. For any reason. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I mean, like in Utah, where if you are a sex offender at all... You're on the public registry. Yeah. Okay. So that's, so is the level of information that we have access to currently on our registry not in line with what's accessed nationally? Like, do we have access, at this point, do we have access to more information than other people do? Um, well, okay. So the state, the, the federal laws uh-huh. are essentially guidelines for the states to pass laws right so that's what i'm asking like in other states do people have less access currently totally to the information on the registry yeah okay for example my evil ex Mm -hmm. he moved to oregon Mm -hmm. and oregon only reveals the information of their highest risk offenders And only under certain circumstances. Okay. So he is no longer on a sex offender registry. Or at least a publicly accessible one. Yes. He's probably still technically on a sex offender registry. Right. But his information is not available to the public. Interesting. Yep. Wow. But, I mean, yeah. No, it's different state by state. Okay, that's what I was trying to know. And also, this, this law got kind of modified in the next case that we're going to cover next oh, okay. week. okay. Yeah, I assumed that, you know... We're not done. Between when we were, you know, what we were just discussing and now that there would probably been more changes, but mm-hmm. that was something I, I just I just assumed was a, you know, national thing. Like... Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, it is a national thing, but... Right, um, I figured the amount of access information was just constant across the nation. No, no it's... And, and it's it's been modified quite a bit here and there. There's, a, there's been a few laws that I could talk about that were done between, or that were enacted between um, the Megan's Law and mm-hmm. next week's case, but they're, they're, not the, they're not the biggest thing, especially because next week's case changes quite a bit. Oh, good. Okay. But also, uh, the most recent sex offender law was mm-hmm. in 2016, and oh, it's okay. called International Megan's Law. Okay, so what does that mean? So, it's still a Megan's Law. This one's a thing. It requires offenders to provide 21 days advance notice of any intended international travel, and requires jurisdictions to submit international travel information to the U.S. Marshal Service for transmission to destination countries via Interpol Washington. So, essentially... All sex offenders now get like a little sex offender stamp on their passports for when they travel travel internationally, hmm. which is, I think, taking it way too far. You can do <sighs> anything yeah. and leave the country and your shit's gone. Except for 
in America, sex offenses. Yeah, I think that's, no, I think that's one of those things that if you're bad enough that you need to be tracked internationally, then what, what the fuck are you doing not in jail? Why are you, yeah, why are I was just you thinking, allowed out? I was trying to think, I'm like, well, how do I feel about that? Like, who, who would I want to be, like, if, let's say if another country was doing that, like, what kind of person would I want to be, or I want my, you know, uh, police force to be notified about before they came into my country? And I was like, oh, somebody who should be in jail. <laughs> right. Right. Somebody who is not using a, you know, legal passport with a registry stamp and like all those things. No, it's somebody who like is dangerous enough that like they should be in jail. Not yeah. like, yeah, no. Anybody worth yeah. just being on the registry and not being in jail should just not be traveling anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's basically how I feel about the registry. So how did that... If somebody is that unsafe, mm-hmm. then why are they out? Right, which again, it's and not... And if somebody is out, then why aren't we treating them like a functioning member of society? Right, so once again, it's not like the... Uh registry couldn't potentially be helpful in lots of situations that have to do with child welfare, but that having access to it isn't addressing the problem that's putting dangerous people back on the streets. Yeah. Well, and also they, there's been studies done on like Megan's law. Mm -hmm. There was, there was one study that was done like 15 years after Megan's law was, was passed Mm -hmm. that basically found that there's no reduction in sex offenses. Right, that there's not been, they can't it, show any measurable impact. And I mean, that's kind of the other thing. If the sex offender registry actually did reduce sex offenses, then I mm-hmm. probably would have a completely different stance. Right. But it doesn't. It doesn't work. So do you know and how? there's all of these other problems with it. Right. Do you know how international Megan's Law became a thing? Was there another crime related or did someone just get no, like. No, that was just Megan's Law again. That was just Somebody was just like law. overexcited about it and was like, you know what we need to do? Fuck these people over more. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because yeah, International Megan's Law is also named after Megan Kinka. Right. Like I said, I just wasn't sure if, I don't know. No, it wasn't a new thing. Yeah. I think. I mean, so I, I'm in the middle of, of reading this really cool law review article about basically the overzealousness of sex offender laws. Mm -hmm. And they summarized it really well by saying that it started as a good idea, you know, like let's have a list of sex offenders for a a police tool. And then an unbridled legislative body that was fueled by angry and uninformed citizens and a passive judiciary that's not stopping it is allowing more and more and more laws to be passed without mm-hmm. any logic behind them. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, I can see yeah. how those problems would develop. So a couple of things, uh, a couple of court stuffs, which is mm-hmm. the which is kind of the fun stuff, is uh, the court cases. But before we finish, so two two issues have been brought up in the constitutionality of sex offender registries. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were both 2002-2003 okay. Supreme Court. The first one is the Connecticut Department of Public Safety versus mm-hmm. Doe. And that was decided in 2002. And this challenged uh, Connecticut's Megan's Law 
for violating the procedural due process. Basically, the the question was, should the state require a pre-deprivation hearing before the public disclosure? And that was a 9-0 court decision. They, they said, no, it doesn't require procedural, it doesn't violate procedural due process. And that was basically because the law was based on the offender's conviction status. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't own, owed a hearing for, to prove an unmaterial fact, which was the dangerousness of the offender. Okay, so the idea, what, what they were saying is that it wasn't constitutional because... No, it was oh, constitutional. No, but the people who were initially... Oh, yeah, yeah. Whatever. They were saying that it wasn't constitutional because being put on the registry was something that happened after a crime they were convicted of, but there wasn't, like, any due process to prove that they were dangerous enough to be on a registry. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And then the court was like, we're not asking how dangerous you are. We're asking we're- if you were convicted. So essentially, Connecticut right, okay. Department of Public Safety veto was a weird, benign case okay. where they were like, you didn't argue this right. <laughs> right. Okay. But then there was the ex post facto problem, which was essentially the double jeopardy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was Smith veto in 2003. Mm-hmm. And that challenged the Alaska Sex Offender Registration Act, which registered uh, sex offenders and Doe, it was two John Doe's. I don't mm-hmm. know why there's so many fucking Doe's. Maybe they're allowed to keep their identity private? I don't yeah, know. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't figured out. But, like, the Doe's are all John Doe's. Weird. I'll have to look into that. Get back to me in two weeks. Okay. And um, they were they were both convicted before the law was created. And so they sued under the ex post facto clause of the Constitution. Okay. Basically, like, we were convicted, we served our time, and then you passed a law requiring us to register. Yeah. After we were convicted, you're violating... Right, you're basically adding more to the sentence. Yeah. After the fact. And that was a 6-3 decision for Alaska because they found that the registration was non-punitive. And therefore, because it was a civil issue and not a criminal issue, because it wasn't punitive, that there was no ex post facto issue. Because they weren't technically being punished. They were just being put on a registry. Right. Okay. Interesting. Ginsburg, Stevens, and Breyer dissented. Ginsburg and Breyer are still on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And they are basically always liberal. Mm -hmm. Breyer's had a couple of decisions that I disagree with, but it's fine. Ginsburg, I love. (laughs) right everyone does everybody loves ginsburg (laughs) so ginsburg stevens and briars dissented basically saying that a the act was ambiguous in intent and punitive effect and you can't just pass vague laws but also they they found that retroactive application violated ex post facto because it kind of was punitive (laughs) Right. That's the thing is like the, arguing that being put on a registry isn't punitive just because it's not uh, punitive by definition. That doesn't mm-hmm. really work. Yeah. I honestly think that that was the Supreme Court getting it wrong mm-hmm. because I think that it violates your privacy rights, you know, because that's basically punitive is is life, liberty, pure f- pursuit of happiness. Right. Right. If being on a registry makes it so you can't. If that's what makes it so you can't get a job or find a house, not your behavior once you're out of jail, 
then that's it is punitive. Yeah. And and yes, if you've been convicted of a crime, your your crime doesn't automatically get sealed. Yeah. Like people can find that information. It's technically public, but you knew that that would happen when you were convicted. The problem right. was is that they were applying this to people who offended before the laws were ever passed. Right. And so the argument was that it violated double jeopardy and the Supreme Court decided that registration laws were non-punitive. And I think that that's bad law because it makes it so that we can make more and more strict registration laws that actually do cross into, no, I think that's violating their, their rights. It can become more and more blatantly punitive and be protected. still. you know, you can't live anywhere to the extent that you're now homeless. You, you kind of got to admit that's fucking punitive. Right. <laughs> and people can find your fucking home address. Yeah, that's like, I don't even like the idea. Like when I get new junk mail that has like my name correct with this address, I'm like, who the fuck has been watching me? I've been living here since November. I don't like that. <laughs> like, why yeah. do you like, I can only imagine. And again, I think you do sort of whether knowingly or unknowingly whatever the consequence of, of crimes against society is that you do lose some, I don't know, you do lose some rights kind of, or do lose mm-hmm. some uh, comforts. And I think that's okay. Yeah. But... I mean, going to jail is using, is losing your right to liberty. Yeah. We are fully accepting that you lose rights when you commit crimes. Yeah. But there are some decisions that, they made it so that it wasn't a right at all. Right. And if it's not a right at all, then you don't even have to worry about violating people's rights when you pass these laws. Right. Which is a scary thing, legally speaking. Yeah. For everyone. That's my problem with this case. Is is not, oh, why are we fighting for the rights of sex offenders? But that we found that they didn't even have rights. Right. It's not necessarily about... Um... Fighting for the wrong team. Yeah, it's not about fighting for, like, ethical treatment of uh, perpetrators. It's about, like, do we want a system that is set up this way? Does does everyone really feel safe in a system that's run this way? Yeah. And there's actually, there is currently a Supreme Court case that I haven't heard anything about Mm -hmm. since it was argued orally in October or November this year, this last year. But it seems as if Gorsuch might be swinging, swinging his vote. Oh, yeah? We're not sure. It's a little weird. But uh, as soon as I, as soon as I find out, we'll, we'll update the podcast. Woo. It's, it's Gundy v. United States, if anybody's, you know, following Scottish decisions. But yeah, that's our, that's our court stuff. Yay! Yay, court stuff. And then next week, we can be done talking about murdered and assaulted children. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited about all the things we're going to cover. I'm not going to, like, you know, give anything away. But I'm excited about all that. Mm-hmm. But on another level, I am excited to... I'd like to get... I'm, I'm looking forward to when we're able to do something more fun, like the werewolf again. Yeah. Where it's it's true bad things that did happen... But it was long enough ago that, or it was long enough ago that we could be desensitized to it and see it more as like a fun, spoopy rather than like more hard stuff to confront about the way we live right now. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's uh, 
sorry for all of the sad. And we're going to be having a series of sad until... It's going to uh, keep getting April. realer. It's just, it's just going to be real. Our podcast is getting real real. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, these stories are really... I, I'm, I'm happy to be telling these stories. I want to be telling these stories. For sure. I so, agree with that. I hope that people want to hear them. Well, at least at least a few people do. Yeah. <laughs> at least for the time being. Like it. Some people <laughs> like us. Yeah. All right. So let's wrap this up. I hope you enjoyed our big sad. We have been Pomegranates and Pitchforks. Follow us on all the things with Palm Pitch Pod. Yep, uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and even Gmail, right? Yes, podcast at Gmail. And we're on as many podcast platforms as I can feasibly find. So listen to us there. (laughs) And if you could rate and review and share with your friends, that would be super cool so that people can find us. Or even just like send us hate mail so we have something to talk about. Send us hate mail because I fucking want to read so much hate mail. I but don't so send well. me too much, because I might cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. All right. Well, okay, love you, bye. Okay, love you, bye. <laughs> <laughs>